Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father, from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text today will be taken from the reading we just heard in the Gospel of Mark. We begin with the word of prayer. Almighty God, by your grace, you have set us free from the bondage to Satan. Lord, you have called us into your kingdom and made us members of your family, and for this we rejoice. Now on this day, O Lord, we pray that you would grant us your Holy Spirit so that we would begin to see things from your perspective and know the truth and be set free by the truth. Now God, grant us your Holy Spirit to this end, and may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in Jesus' name, amen. It is all a matter of perspective. Have you ever heard that phrase before? You ever used that phrase? It's all a matter of perspective. It's becoming one of those shibboleths of our culture, one of those common phrases that everybody just kind of uses for everything, uh, but we're not even really sure what it means uh, anymore. More and more, we are being told that everything is a matter of perspective, whether it's our politics or our history or our religious views, everything is a matter of perspective. Now, sometimes this is sort of innocent and it's not that big of a deal. Like, for example, how do you feel uh, this year about the Padres' recent success in baseball? Now, by the way, this illustration would have worked a lot better last week than it does this week, as it turns out. Uh, nonetheless, how do you feel about the Padres' success? If you are a Padres fan, this is a good thing, and you're celebrating this season. If you're a Dodgers fan, I'm not going to mention you, Pete. Uh, if you're a Dodgers fan, maybe you're not that excited about what you see happening with the Padres. If you are a wayward Rockies fan looking for a bandwagon to jump on, it is a very convenient time to be living in San Diego County. It's just a matter of perspective, right? It depends on your perspective. Maybe you're saying, I know nothing about baseball and I'm already tired of this sermon. That might be your perspective. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, so there it doesn't really matter. But sometimes perspective significantly matters. And we're getting into the point in our culture now where we're beginning to equate perspective with truth. And no perspective, some might say, can be more true than another. For example, I, I have a friend who is a, not a believer in, in God. He is an atheist. He used to be a Christian, and now he's left the faith. And he told me once that the only reason that I am a Lutheran is because I was brought up in a Lutheran household. And the only reason I believe that the world was created in seven days by God by means of his word, and the only reason I believe that is because I was taught it. That was my perspective I was given. But he now is one who has left the faith, and from his perspective, there is no God, and the whole thing is a great big cosmic accident. But it's really impossible to tell who's more right than the other, so it's all a matter of perspective. But I hope we can see how kind of nonsensical such thinking is. The existence of the universe and how it came into being is a matter of fact, not a matter of perspective and you can in fact have a wrong perspective on facts on history on religion and such things this becomes very clear to us today as we come to the reading from the gospel because here as we arrive at jesus's ministry in mark chapter 3 we see a number of people who have different perspectives on jesus it's interesting how nothing has really changed we all still have a variety of perspectives on who Jesus is and what his ministry was all about. I mean, we see this everywhere today. Well, already early on in his ministry, everyone has a different perspective on Jesus. And according to Jesus, many of these perspectives are wrong. And not just wrong, dangerous, sinful. 
damning. Jesus will even go so far as to say today that one of these perspectives is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which he categorizes as the sin that has no forgiveness. These are not neutral perspectives on the Lord, but dangerous and blasphemous. So what we want to do today is we want to examine the different perspectives of Jesus we find in the text, and we want to see how it is that Jesus actually deals with these and handles these things from his perspective, which is really just the truth. So, let's bring ourselves up to speed. We're in Mark chapter 3 today, and Mark chapter 3 is very early in the gospel of Mark, but if you've ever read through this gospel, you know things get moving quick. Already by chapter 3, Jesus has been very active in his ministry. He has been out claiming that the kingdom of God is at hand in his arrival. He has been healing the sick. He has been casting out demons. He has been forgiving sins, and he's been doing some of this stuff on a Sabbath day. And it's really become quite controversial. At this point, Jesus has become, in the culture, front-page news. And if there's anything we Americans know about front-page news, is that front-page news is something to be debated. It's something to be argued about. So everybody was arguing about Jesus. Everybody was debating about him. Well, as this debate is sort of raging, Jesus comes home to Nazareth, to his hometown. And as he arrives there, we find out that his family is even caught up in the debate. From their perspective, Jesus has gone crazy. They're very uncomfortable with this. He's making a lot of bad enemies, and he's making a lot of bad friends eating and dining with sinners. And you can just imagine, his mother is terrified. His mother is entirely anxious about what Jesus is doing here. So she gets her sons together, and they find out that Jesus is in town, and they go out to get him to bring him home. After all, the text says, they went out to seize him, For they were saying, he is out of his mind. From their perspective, Jesus had gone crazy. But I mean, you got to kind of, you know, you kind of understand where Mary's coming from here, right? I mean, she's watching the enemies Jesus is making. She's recognizing the danger he's putting himself in. And she's thinking to herself, doesn't he remember his job? Doesn't he remember the story of the angels and the miraculous birth and all of this? Doesn't Jesus know that he's come to be a Messiah and a king? But the way he's working right now, he's bound to get himself killed. From her perspective, this is a dangerous situation and a, and a terrifying situation. And so she gets her sons together and they go out to silence Jesus, to bring him in, to settle him down, to calm him down. He needs to relax. And now from Jesus' perspective, that is from the angle of the truth, Jesus sees what his family is doing, and he calls it sinful. In fact, Jesus goes so far as today to call it blasphemy because his family is uttering words against him. And he has come in the name of God to do God's work. And so to silence Jesus, to try and tone Jesus down, is to work against the kingdom of God. It is to stand opposed to God. It is to speak against God, which is called blasphemy. And no matter who you are, no matter how you were brought up, no matter what your relationship is with with Jesus, if you oppose his work, if you oppose his teaching, if you oppose his word, You are against him. You are, as it were, outside of the family. So Jesus' mother and and brothers show up and they're outside the house and they call to him to come out, to come home. And everybody around says, Jesus, your mother and your brothers are here to come get you. And Jesus says this. 
well, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Now that begs the question, what is the will of God? Well, Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John, it is the will of God that we would believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to trust Jesus' word. It is to trust God's word alone. It is to trust that the work Jesus is doing is being done to accomplish the salvation of the world. The work of God is to trust in, to receive, to believe in Jesus Christ. And that's the problem with, the disciple, with, with Mary and the kids. That's not what they were doing. From their perspective, they didn't trust what Jesus was doing. It was time to bring him, him, him home. He was on the road to getting himself killed in their mind, and this was a bad thing. He was on the road, you might say, to a cross, and from this perspective, this was bad. But Jesus comes to tell us is that he's on that path, and that's precisely why he came. From Christ's perspective, from God's perspective, that is according to God's will, Jesus had come in order to die, in order to give his life up as a sacrifice for our sins. And so that by going to this cross, he might die to pay for sins and forgive sins, to forgive your sins, to forgive my sins, to forgive his family's sins, and to forgive all sins and blasphemies that were uttered against him. Listen again to these remarkable words from Jesus today. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. And i got to tell you, these are very comforting words for me today. Because I can tell you without a doubt that there have been times in my life where I have soft-pedaled the Word of God. Where I have tried to settle Jesus down. Where I have taken the Scriptures and I have tried to tone them down to make them more palatable, more likable, easier to listen to. I valued my comfort, my reputation, my relationships more than Christ's Word. And I would venture to guess I'm not the only one here who's done it. I'd venture to guess there are many of us here today who have soft-pedaled the Word, who have tried to tone Jesus down or put Him away because He's just a little bit too offensive and we don't want to have to you know, bring Him out and have Him interrupt our dinner parties and our happy lives. And from God's perspective, this is a wicked sin. A wicked sin for which we should all repent. We have worked against Christ and His Word in this way. This is what is so comforting about Jesus' words today. It is a wicked sin for which the Lord Jesus Christ has died. All sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, including that sin. And that is what has been done for you. That sin is forgiven you. So repent of it, hand it over to Jesus, and hear the good news today. Your sins and blasphemies are forgiven. We know that this is how it works because it's exactly what happened for Jesus' family. Because after trying to silence Jesus, where do we ultimately find Jesus' family? Well, after the resurrection, we find Mary sitting among the apostles on the day of Pentecost, going forth and proclaiming the good news. We know that we have two books in the Bible written, we believe, uh, by Jesus' half-brothers, James and Jude. We know that Jesus' family came to have faith in Him. Their sins were forgiven and they were brought back into the family of God. So for this, we rejoice today. But now there's one other perspective about Jesus' ministry that we find in the text today that does not receive quite as gracious of a word from the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that is the perspective that comes from the scribes. That is the religious uh, sort of uh, authorities from Jerusalem. And they've come down to examine Jesus, to study Jesus. They've heard about this reputation. They've seen the front page news. And so they want to know what this guy is all about. And after observing his miracles, after observing his teaching, they have come to a very particular conclusion that this man is evil. That Jesus is not from God as he claims, but in fact is from Satan. And it is by the power of Satan that he is accomplishing these things. So from their perspective, Mark tells us, they said, he is possessed by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is just a big fancy name for Satan. Do you know what it means? Does anybody know what Beelzebul actually means? It's interesting. Lord of the Flies. Lord of the Flies. So there's a, there's a book in there for you. But nonetheless, uh, Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons, they say. They're committing what is known as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because they are saying the work of God is evil and sinful. The works that Christ are accomplishing by dining with sinners and healing on the Sabbath day and teaching that he is God in the flesh, these are the acts of Satan, according to these scribes. This, Jesus says, is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And you want to persist in that thing, you are committing what is known as the unforgivable sin. Now, the reality is, is that we see this sort of perspective about Jesus uh, sort of in droves in our culture now. We're living in a time, just as Jesus was, where God's word and his work is constantly facing accusation and being called evil. Uh, There are those who think and teach that the word of God now is hateful, is dangerous, and is wrong. It is increasingly becoming the norm to say that the teachings of God's word that we find in the church, the teachings on things like God, how God created marriage between man and a woman, or how God created male and female, only two genders, we're being told now that this is sort of hateful and harmful speech. What Jesus says concerning sin has lost all popularity in our culture. Not that it was ever popular to say it, but it was at least at a time believed. Jesus comes along and says, your heart is sinful above all things. And Jesus teaches that we deserve nothing from God but punishment and wrath. And this is increasingly called unhealthy and oppressive regardless of whether or not it's true. You see, Jesus says these things and the church is called to teach these things not to be oppressive and angry and mean, but rather so that we can acknowledge the truth, we can diagnose the disease so that finally we can come to the place for healing and hear the good news. The call is not simply to point out sin, but to call sinners to repentance, to hear that Jesus comes to forgive. But what the world has done now is they've stopped saying, um, what the world has done now is to say to teach in that way is to be Satan casting out Satan. You're simply bullying people out of their sinfulness, which isn't sinfulness at all, the world says. The world seeks to affirm sin, and thus in this way, they get in the way of the merciful work of Christ. They they prevent Christ from coming to forgive sin, to proclaim sinners free. They stand in the way of mercy by saying there's no need for mercy. They stand in the way of forgiveness by saying there's no such thing as sin. And this is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, the church's job then is to come along and to proclaim Christ and to announce the forgiveness of sins 
uh, despite what the world says. But nonetheless, I fear that we see a very similar danger coming in from the church's perspective, or at least from those who claim to be teaching in the name of the church. Because far too often what we find taking place from uh, those who have religious uh, uh, titles is they begin to preach God's word, but only part of it, only the law. What's very nerve-wracking about this text today is that it is not the world that is accusing Jesus, but it's the religious leaders. And they come along and they accuse him of being far too merciful and far too gracious and spending too much time with the wrong kinds of sinners. They come along and they preach nothing but fire and brimstone and they heap burning coals on people's head with no view for mercy, with no view for forgiveness, with no hope for those who are bound to their sin. And the, the church, I fear, comes dangerously close to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because instead of ever announcing forgiveness, it simply accuses. And maybe we shouldn't say the church. Maybe we should simply say those who claim to be the church come along and they only accuse with no eyes for mercy and in this way withhold forgiveness. So that the irony is, is that both of these perspectives, the one that only affirms sin and the one that only accuses of sin, both end up in the same place. Trying to silence Christ. Trying to prevent the work of the Holy Spirit from taking place. Trying to withdraw the mercy of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. I'm trying to think of a good word picture, and I'm, I'm not sure I've worked it out yet, but you guys get to watch me work it out in front of you right now, so that's kind of terrifying but it would be kind of like this the world will come along and say hey that thing that everyone else is calling the sin you know what it's not a bad thing it's something you should take pride in something you should be proud of you should celebrate it and rejoice in it and in doing this what the world is doing is they're taking you and they're binding you to a train that is bound for hell now the church has been sent to set you free from that bondage to proclaim Christ, but far too often too many scribes and Pharisees stand up and they're there at the train loading dock and all they do is yell and accuse and mock and belittle and offer no help to the person who is bound to that train. But you see, Jesus Christ does neither of these things. For Jesus Christ comes to set the captives free. He comes not to bind sinners to their sin, but to free them from their sins. Jesus comes not to, to bind us to a train that is bound for hell, but to set us free from that train, bind himself to it, take the accusations, and go in our place. Christ has come to conquer the devil, to tell us the truth, for it's only by the truth that we will be set free. And this is the truth, that you are the sinner. You are the one who deserves punishment and wrath from God. The even greater truth is, is that there is more forgiveness in Jesus than there is sin in you. And he has come to put himself in your place on the cross to die for you and shed his blood for you so that you are forgiven. And what's more, he's not just done it for you, but he's done it for all the sinners in this world. Regardless of what their sin is, they are those for whom Jesus has died. And it is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to speak against this, to work against this, to try and stop Christ from coming. See, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not like you just said something bad about Jesus once and now there's no hope for you. No, it is the active, rebellious work against the gospel. But it is not God's will that any would commit this sin. It is not God's will that anyone would ultimately reject his son. 
And in fact, what we find throughout, Christian, his, throughout history and throughout the Scriptures is, is a number of people who were blaspheming against Christ who were then redeemed. We see it with someone like St. Paul. St. Paul whose job it was to go forth and to kill Christians for proclaiming Christ. And the Lord pursued him, and he found him, and he got him, and he brought him in. And through Paul, we have some of the greatest writings in all of the world's history. Or we can think of another guy, a more modern example, uh, like C.S. Lewis. I don't know if you know, are familiar with C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote a number of incredibly important books, uh, including the Narnia Chronicles, which are delightful stories. Uh, Lewis was one of these great Christian authors of the last century. Lewis worked very hard to come against Christianity from every possible philosophical perspective until finally the Lord Jesus Christ snatched him and brought him into his kingdom, brought him into his family. And Lewis said, I was brought in kicking and screaming, which is always a funny thing to say. Not celebrating and dancing, but kicking and screaming. Nonetheless, Christ got him. You see, from God's perspective, these were not people beyond the realm of redemption. Now, from our perspective, it may look like it, but not God's. God saw these sinners as he sees all sinners, as those who should be forgiven, declared holy, and righteous on account of his Son. And after all, that's what he's done for you, so that you can know today that no matter what the world's perspective of Jesus is, ultimately and finally, the truth is, he is your God who has saved you and made you a member of his family. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks that you have made us part of the family through your shed blood. We thank you, Jesus, that you have died in our place, made us your own, and set us free. Now, Lord, give us the words of life that go forth and bring others to this freedom. Help us not to shy away from the truth, but to be bold in proclaiming your good news. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.